If you'll take your copy of Scripture and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. And over the last several weeks, actually many weeks, we've been listening to Jesus, or hope that we have. Um, and listening to the things that he has to say about just a, a myriad of topics. I know I've said this a couple of times, but I think it bears repeating. I think one of the things that I have learned for myself is how often and how quick I am to change what Jesus says. I don't know if you've noticed, but every time that Jesus speaks, it's simple, it's clear, it's powerful, and, and it transforms if we let it. But again, it's been amazing to me how quick I am to take a very simple, clear message that Jesus gives, and I do all sorts of mental and spiritual gymnastics to make it not apply to me. I, I try to change it. And maybe you do too. And I think the reason that we do is because if we live in the reality of the things that Jesus asks us to do, it's going to radically alter the way we live. We can no longer live for ourselves. We can no longer live for our desires. We can no longer waste our days on our selfishness and self-centeredness. Jesus calls us into a radical, personal, intimate relationship with him. And he accepts no substitutes. He doesn't want half of you. He doesn't want some of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want to give you an opportunity to say, well, Jesus, these things are important and I, I'll follow those. He wants all of his words to be followed completely all the time. And what happens for many of us is because we've heard his words over and over and over and over and over and over. Did I say over? Because we've heard them over and over again. We think we know. Oh, I, I, I know what Jesus is asking of me. Really? Because if we really knew what Jesus was asking of us, why aren't we doing it? What we're going to read today is a very, very familiar passage. It's the Great Commission. I want to end the series with this. And I've been waiting for this because this really isn't the end, it's the beginning. And so what I'm sharing with you today is not an end. It is the calling, it's the beginning, it's the foundation of who we are. But unfortunately, for most of us and most churches, we're, we're, we're not living this out. I want you to hear the words of Jesus today. And I want to ask you to do something really, really quick. I want to ask you right now to ask Jesus. I want you to pray to him and ask him, Jesus, help me to hear your words. Help me to understand your words, not the way that I want them to be, but what you want me to understand. And Jesus, help me from this day forward live out your words. And here's a guarantee. If you pray that prayer and you hear his words, and you live them out, your life will never be the same.
I'll never be the same. In fact, you'll start becoming the person that you've always wanted to be. The person who loves Jesus, who serves Jesus, who sees Jesus showing up in your life and the life of other people. And can I just selfishly say, (laughs) that's what I want for me and that's what I want for this church. I could care less how many numbers we have on Sunday morning. I could care less how many programs we do. What I care about is that one day all of us would live the way that Jesus says. Because when we live the way Jesus says, God brings increase. Can't help but grow. God changes lives. So let's listen to the words of Jesus and say yes. Matthew 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Last words are important. If you've ever sat by the bedside of a loved one as they've passed away, you hang on every word that they share. Now this is a little different. Jesus had already passed away and he was come back to life, but these are his last words on earth. We get something similar in Acts 1.8 where he says the same thing, go, go. And I, I wanna just kind of set the stage before we unpack this because here's the thing, we, we read this and we divorce it from the rest of the chapter If you read all of Matthew 28, it reads like this very powerful, you know, testimony. Jesus has been resurrected. The women see him and he speaks to them and says, go and tell my disciples that I'm alive. And here's where I want you to meet me. And the disciples run to to see him and he's not there and and he meets them. And then he says, I want to meet with you again. Come to this mountain. I have something to share with you. Now I want you to put yourself in that place. Think about all the things that have been happening in their life. For three and a half years, they've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've watched him do amazing and wonderful things. And then all of a sudden, it all came crashing down. Everything that they had hoped about Jesus came crashing down when he was arrested one night and put on trial and he was crucified. Everything seemed to be over. They had given their life to something. They had radically changed their life and now it was over. And they had to wait. And on Easter Sunday morning, something changed forever. Jesus, under his own power and his own authority and his own glory, raised himself from the dead. He walked out of the tomb alive, conquering sin, death, and hell. And he says, I have a mission for you. I don't know about you, but if I was in the crowd that day, as I was standing around looking at him, I would want to open my ears and listen. I'd never, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. How about you? And yet here is Jesus alive in the flesh, standing in front of them. And he says, I have a mission for you. 
And Jesus is still alive today. And he's still saying, I have a mission for you. But I want to work through some things before we get to that point. Here's, here's something that caught me. Maybe you've never seen before. It says the 11 were gathered on the mountain that Jesus had told them to go to. And then they see him. Oh, man. I can't wait until I get to see him. It will make everything that I have gone through in this life, everything that has happened in this world worth it all when I get to see him. And can you imagine that day as they were standing there and the one who they thought they had lost, the one whom they thought was dead, the one whom they thought they'd put all their faith, hope and trust in is standing in front of them alive. Here's what we get. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him but some were doubtful. They worshiped him and they doubted. I'm very thankful the Bible gives us information the way that it does. It's, it's not willy nilly, it's not just thrown together. God gives us things that we need to hear and we need to understand. And sometimes when we read these things, we don't understand or put ourselves in that perspective. Imagine seeing Jesus alive and still doubting. We'd like to tell ourselves we wouldn't be one of those people, right? Oh, I would believe. I, I would totally believe. Yeah, but we still doubt right now too, don't we? And listen, do you see anywhere in here where Jesus judges their doubt? Do you see anywhere in here where Jesus condemns them because they're doubting? No, it says they worshiped and they doubted. Some believed and some struggled to believe. I don't know about you, but these are one of the most comforting words I could hear at a time like this. That even those people who were closest to Jesus, even those people who had seen everything, still struggled to believe. Probably they struggled to believe that Jesus really wanted them. That Jesus was really calling them. That they were lucky enough to get to see and to hear and experience all the things that Jesus had said and done. You ever feel that way? Most of my doubt and most of my struggle comes from those areas. I just feel super lucky that Jesus said, hey, I want you to be my child and he brought me in. I feel super lucky and I, I just feel sometimes like, Jesus, I don't know that you chose the right person. There's so many people out there that are better. Why me? Some believed and some doubted. And here's why this should bring us comfort. Doubt didn't keep them from worshiping. Did you catch it? They worshiped him, they all, but some of them doubted. Doubt didn't keep them from worshiping and doubt shouldn't keep us from worshiping, but it does. Fear didn't keep them from worshiping. I think probably there was some fear going on that day. There would be some fear for me to be standing in the presence of God, finally kind of dawning on me who this Jesus is. I had seen a lot of things. I mean, there were times when they were scared of Jesus, you know, when he walked on water, when he calmed the storm, when he raised the dead, they would say, who is this guy? And really the reality is, is like, 
I'm a little scared right now. Could you imagine the fear that day as Jesus walks in in his glory? He's walked out of death on his own and he's standing there in front of you. I'd be a little bit afraid. But fear didn't keep them from worshiping. And it shouldn't keep us from worshiping. And one of the things that I love is that doubt didn't keep them from the mission that Jesus was about to give them. And their doubt didn't keep Jesus from calling them into mission. Jesus immediately goes into the great commission and commissions them and commissions us to go on mission for him. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't stop and say, well, listen, I, I know some of you doubting right now. And so let me pick out the ones that are doubting. Y'all need to go home and you need to study a little bit and you need to figure this out. And then once you've figured it out, you come back and we'll call you on mission. No. They worshiped, some doubted, and Jesus commissioned. Listen, it does not matter what doubt you have. It does not matter what fear you have. It doesn't matter what shame you have. It doesn't matter what past you have. It doesn't matter what burdens you carry. None of those things are obstacles to Jesus calling you into mission and using you. I spent too many years when I surrendered to ministry afraid to do what God called me to do because of my past. I was afraid that I would be preaching one day like this and somebody from my past would just pop up in the service and start telling everybody all the things that I had said and all the things that I had done. And I stayed quiet because I forgot the fundamental truth and I think that we have too that Jesus knows all the things about us and yet he still says, I'm calling you. Jesus knows our doubts, he knows our fears, he knows our shame, he knows our past, he knows our sin and none of those things disqualify. Here's what he's saying, I know you and I'm calling you. He still called every one of them into his mission. And what is that? Well, Jesus begins in verse 18 to tell us what that is. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. You know, I like words. You know, I like phrases. You know, I like to ask questions when I hear these things. So immediately when I hear Jesus start out with this, you notice he doesn't just immediately start out by calling. Jesus makes a statement, a very powerful statement. All authority has been given to me. Why did he say this? Why do you feel the need to say this to them and say this to us? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Jesus is reminding us of who he is, 
Reminding us of his power and his glory and his authority. Here's what he's reminding us of. He is our savior. He is our God. He is our Lord. He's the one that determines the destiny of our life. Christianity at its heart is not democracy. It's dictatorship. We have one leader who makes all the decisions and we get no input. Thankfully, he's kind and gracious and compassionate and good. But I think we mistake his love and his grace for weakness. And so Jesus is reminding his early disciples and Jesus is reminding you as disciples that he has all authority. Notice he doesn't share it. Notice he doesn't lack it. I've got some authority. You've got some authority. When we hear the word all, what does that mean? All. Jesus has all authority. And so he says, listen, my authority covers all things. And he gives us some other alls in here. It covers all disciples. It covers all nations. And it covers all commands. Did you check that in there? All disciples. There's not anybody under the sound of his voice that day that could say, you know what, Jesus, you're not calling me. When he says, all my disciples, I have all authority and therefore I'm calling you. Nobody gets to wiggle out of that. And then his authority extends to all the nations. He sends us out into all the world. And notice, he didn't ask their permission. He didn't go to the kings of those nations and say, would you like for my people to come and share my gospel and my freedom with the people in your country? Can I have your permission to do that? No. He says, go into all the nations. Why? Because he has all authority. He's the ruler over all nations and all people. And he says, all my commands. I always love the question that I get. And it's a great question. So don't think I'm belittling. It's a great question. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they say, how do you know how to follow what Jesus says? How do you know? And you don't understand what they're asking, right? Which ones do we really have to follow and which ones can we just not? And what does Jesus say? All, 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 all of my commands. Jesus' authority covers all things. And this is what he says. As a show of my authority, I am commissioning you into ministry. That's why we call it the Great Commission. The word commission is pretty amazing. It has kind of a double meaning. It means a charge, which is what I'm doing right now. I'm charging you with words. I'm charging you with action that you need to be doing. I'm charging you to say, this is your responsibility. But it also means the giving of authority and purpose. 
That's why we use the word commission when we, people enter into the military. We commission them into positions. It's a giving of authority and purpose. And so Jesus says, I am exercising my authority over you as your Lord, as your King, as your God, and I now commission you. Again, notice, did he ask the disciples if they wanted to sign up? Did he put a sign-up sheet on the table next to him and say, hey, if you guys are interested in being a part of what I'm doing, if you'd really like to do this, here, you can sign up right here and we'll talk more, we'll discuss. He doesn't do that. As God, as Lord, as Savior, he looks them in the eyes and says, I commission you. Now, I know it's getting a little uncomfortable, so let me, let, you, let me not let you off the hook. Jesus is looking you in the eye today and saying, I commission you. Just because you weren't standing on the mountain in Galilee doesn't mean that you get out. If you're gonna follow him, he's going to commission you. And here's where I think we struggle. Here's where the mental gymnastics and the spiritual gymnastics come in. Here's what we've told ourselves. That the calling to be his disciple, the calling to go in the nations, the calling to baptize and to teach is for a special few. It's optional. It's for those like me who have surrendered their life to vocational ministry. It's for those that teach Sunday school. It's for those who are missionaries. It's those who are deacons. And so we feel very comfortable showing up to church and say, God, I'm going. I go to church. And I want you to hear this with all the love that I can share with you. Going to church is not the same thing as going into the world to be his disciple. It's not. Going to church is the place that you go to get charged up, to get taught, to be fed, to be accountable, to go into the world. Going to church is not ministry. It's what feeds you and prepares you for ministry. But he says, I am exercising my authority over you by commissioning you into ministry. This is your duty. I used to love this TV series when I was a kid. I loved the movies that came out later to pick that series up, Mission Impossible. And one of the things that I loved about Mission Impossible was they would have this crazy mission that they would give to the person. And you remember what they would, the tagline they would say at the end? This is your mission if you choose to accept it. God doesn't call people the way that the IMF called Ethan Hunt. God does not lay out our mission and then at the end the tagline is, this is your mission if you choose to accept it. Here's what Jesus says, if you accept me, you accept your mission. You can't separate the two. You can't have Jesus and not be on mission. So what does this ministry really look like? What does it look like? It's made up of three parts, going, baptizing, and teaching. 
And here's the thing. When we say that, people are like, that's too simple. It's too easy. You're right. Because we've made it way, 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 way too complicated. We've done so many things to add into this so that we're not doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. And so we're super busy and we're doing all sorts of things and we can look and say, look at us. We are super busy. Are we going? Not really. Are we baptizing? No. Are we teaching? Teaching, that's for somebody else. What are you talking about? What does this ministry look like? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Go, baptize, and teach. Going means to be on mission. People like to make a lot of the part of Greek that this comes from, that it's not going, it's as you go, where you go, when you go. But the reality of what God is trying to tell us here is that part of being his disciple means that we are going, that we're on mission. And what that means is the time is now. I used to ask all the time, when, when, when do you go? When do you do? Like, how, how do you do all that? And here's what Jesus is saying, now. When's the best time to be on mission? Now. When is it good to go? Now. Time is now. But we've given ourselves permission to waste our life. We, well, here's what we'll say. I'll go when. I'll go after. I'll go when things slow down. And it's funny, things never slow down, do they? I've found this sad reality as I've gotten older, time just seems to blaze by. Like 10 minutes ago, my kids were little. <laughs> now they're 12 and nine. 10 minutes from now, they're gonna be out of the house. Time just blazes by. I've shared this before, but I think it is really pertinent here. I told you last words are important. And one of the last words that my dad said to me before he died was scary. We were in his hospital room and he looks at me and he basically said, they've used me up. They've used me up. I've got nothing left and I've done nothing with my life. The they that he was talking about was his company. Uh, he worked at a factory. He worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day for a lot of years. But I think the reality of what he was trying to say is I used myself up. I wasted my life on things that have no value. I wasted my life trying to provide a better home, trying to have better vacations, trying to have bigger cars, trying to do all the things that people say that I need to do. And now as I'm standing on eternity's doorstep, I recognize none of that stuff's coming with me. Now, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they're really bad when they keep us from recognizing that the time is now to go. The time is now. 
And then the question always comes, well, if I'm called to go, where am I supposed to go? I don't feel called to go to Africa. Isn't that funny? Isn't that the place that everybody picks? I'm not feel called. I don't feel called to go to Africa. You're right. You're not. You're called to go to your parents. You're called to go to your spouse. You're called to go to your children. You're called to go to your coworkers. You're called to go to the people that you do hobbies with. You're called to the cashier at the grocery store. You're called to the gas station attendant. You're called to the, the waitress in the restaurant. You are called in the field where you've been planted. Isn't it funny that we have given ourselves permission that because we're not called internationally, that means that we're not called. And so we walk through this mission field that we've been planted in and you've been specially gifted in to meet and to serve and to live in. And we walk past all of that feeling completely fine that we're not called to missions because God didn't call us to Africa. Jesus says, go. The time is now. The field is where you're planted. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, and I ask myself, what keeps us from going? What keeps us from going? We've allowed ourselves to get comfortable. We've allowed ourselves to get comfortable and we've convinced ourselves that what we're doing is what God wants us to do and we're going. And that's why we hear statistics like this, that about 85 to 90% of church people have not shared the gospel with anyone in six months. Now you think, well, that's not bad. Well, it's really misleading because here's the thing, 98% of church people have never invited anybody to church or shared the gospel with anybody at all. What keeps us from going? Maybe it's because you weren't convinced that you've been commissioned. Maybe it's that you weren't convinced that you had a mission field. Can I ask you if you're convinced now? I hope this isn't the case. Maybe the reason you don't go is that you don't care that people are dying and going to hell. See, here's the reality. When I preach on hell, and I, I get this a lot, people say, you need to preach on hell more. That's what our church, you need to preach on hell more. No, you need to believe in hell more. Because if you believed in hell more, you would go and talk to people who are in your life who are dying and going to hell and not wait on me to preach a sermon on it. Listen, if we really believe what Jesus says, because Jesus talked about hell as much or more than he talked about anything else, and I believe everything that he said, if we really believe what he said about hell, why aren't we going? And listen, I know I sound passionate and maybe you think I'm being angry, I'm not. I'm mad at myself. I'm not mad at you, I'm mad at myself. I'm mad at myself because I think about all the times where I just can't be bothered. I just can't be bothered to share the gospel with somebody because I'm afraid they're gonna think I'm weird. Listen, I'm weird enough as it is. It's crazy that I'm gonna worry that they're gonna think I'm weird because I wanna talk about Jesus. 
baptizing. It always bothered me a little bit that Jesus talked about baptism and not evangelism. Why, Jesus? Why are you talking about baptism? Well, here's the thing. In Jesus' eyes, baptism is our public profession of faith. It is us being willing to stand in front of people and say, I am not ashamed that I am a sinner. I am not ashamed that I've asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I am not ashamed that I've surrendered myself to him and he's cleansed me from the inside out. And I want to show you that by being baptized. It's like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense then. Not only are we two to go, but we are to go with a very special and powerful message. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us that our calling, our going, is the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Because we have been reconciled to God in Christ, he wants to give us the word of reconciliation so we can go out in the world and tell people things. Very certain, particular thing how to be reconciled with God. And he gives the most succinct and powerful gospel presentation. Are you ready for it? I'm going to give it to you real quick. Here's what we tell people. God wants you back. Your relationship with God has been broken. It is damaged. You are in rebellion against him. But here's the good news. God wants you back. And you're going to probably ask, well, how does God want me back if I've done all these horrible and terrible things? Well, here's what here's it is. God wants to be reconciled to you. God wants to mend the relationship. God wants to end all of the hurt and pain. God wants to wash away all the brokenness. So God is making the attempt first. I want you back. I want to be reconciled to you. How can this work? If everything that you say is true and there's all this brokenness and sin and rebellion, how do we get over that? Well, here's the good news. God doesn't want to hold your sin against you. Let that sink in. God doesn't want to hold your sin against you. Who does that? God does. And God exchanges your sin for Christ's righteousness. God takes all of your sin and shame and fear and doubt and he puts it on Jesus and Jesus drinks it all so that God may pour out his grace and goodness and love and forgiveness and righteousness on us. That's the gospel. And that's what this whole baptism thing is about. We go out into the world, a lost and dying, rebellious world, and we tell them that God wants them back and that God wants to be reconciled to them and that God doesn't want to hold their sin against them and that God wants to exchange their sin for Christ's righteousness. And we say, well, wait a second, why, why me? Well, God's commissioned you. He's called you to be an ambassador. That's what Paul says. We've been called to be ambassadors in Christ. We are called to represent the king. And who better to go out and share the, glo- the glory of the gospel than someone who's been transformed by it? I'm a sucker for infomercials. And let me tell you why I'm a sucker. Watching people on there that look like the product has really changed them and listening to their story, I'm like, yeah, I think I need to get that too. 
We have been called to be ambassadors, to go out into the world and say, listen, everything that I'm telling you is true because it's happened to me. And Paul says, as an ambassador, we are to plead with people to reconcile. Actually, the word he uses is beg. We are to beg people to be reconciled to God. What keeps you from sharing? We talked about going and what keeps you from going. What keeps you from sharing? I'll give you the excuse that I used to use. Maybe this isn't the one you use, but this is the excuse I used to use. I just, I just don't know how. I just, I don't know how to share my faith. And I want you to hear what the Holy Spirit kind of shared with me to kind of snap me out of that. If you don't know how to share your faith, how did you get in the faith in the first place? Have you ever thought that? If you can't share the simple gospel of how God transformed your life and forgave your sins, how in the world did you accept it in the first place? Because if you don't understand it enough to share it, do you understand enough to be in it? So really the thing is not that we don't know how, it's that we don't want to. And then he says teaching. Teaching, follow me as I follow Christ teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. It's being equipped to do the work of ministry. This is not necessarily content, but it's content and lifestyle. And here's the problem. The church has been really good at pushing content. We haven't really been good about lifestyle. Here's what I mean by that. When someone asks, how do I follow Jesus or what do I need to do? We give them a book and tell them, here's 10 things. Go learn those. But we don't teach the way Paul taught. Paul brought people into his life. He had Timothy. He had Titus. He had Epaphroditus. He had all these guys. He brought them into his life. And here's what he would tell them. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we say, well, of course, that's Paul. I mean, I'm not Paul. No, but you are. You've received the same calling that Paul has. You've received the same Holy Spirit as Paul has. You've received the same opportunities of the word. Actually, we have better opportunities because we have the completed Bible that he didn't have. Here's what happens for us. We're really great at consuming content and never putting it into practice in our life. We just devour Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and we think, man, I'm really growing. But the problem is it's not showing up. The way we talk doesn't change. The way we think doesn't change. The way we live doesn't change. In fact, the large majority of people in our life could not tell the difference. 
I want to tell you about a really sad moment in my life. I've been a Christian for about seven years and started to feel the call in a ministry. And I was really, I was teaching Sunday school. I was singing in the choir. I was working in the youth and children's ministry. I was doing all these things. And I saw a friend from high school that I hadn't seen in seven years. And we got to talking and, um, you know, and they, and, and, and we were just doing all these things and we began to hang out and we've been hanging out for a few months and something came up along the line of, hey, I can't go out with you guys tonight because I got to go to church tomorrow. And the person laughed at me and went, yeah, yeah, right, Michael, stop kidding. No, seriously, I got to go to church tomorrow. I got a Sunday school lesson I got to teach. I got th these things that I'm doing. Come on, man, come on. Stop being silly. We know you don't go to church. What? Never talked about it. Sure doesn't change the way you joke and do the things with us and how you live. I, I see no difference in your life from my life. That was a tough drive home that night. What keeps us from teaching? For most of us, the reason we don't teach is we don't feel called to it. But the problem is, is once you are commissioned into God's ministry, what's one of the things that you're supposed to be doing? Teaching. Or we'll say the church never equipped me. And here's the thing, we have all sorts of opportunities for people to come and learn and grow. And, and really a part of it is we just don't want to. Do you really want to? Because if you really want to, we have places for you to plug in and be taught so you can learn how to go and mentor and to share and to grow and to teach other people. But I think honestly, the reason we don't teach is that our life doesn't match our calling. I had to go back in my life to three very close friends. I had lived as a Christian for a while. I professed faith at seven, but really didn't get transformed. I got saved at 18. God began to work in my life and grow. And I came to a point where I, I recognized that I needed to go back and make amends. So I went to three of my closest friends who I grew up with, who knew that I went to church, saw all the things that I did with them and I apologized to them. And what I said was this, hey, I know for a long time you believed that I was a Christian, I wasn't. And I know for a long time you believed that the way I lived was how Christians lived, it's not. And I know that what I'm telling you right now might not make any sense, but I want to apologize to you because the Jesus that I showed you is not the real Jesus. The life that I lived was not the real life of Christ. I'm sorry. And so I want to show you now what it looks like to follow Jesus because I do. And I want to show you now what it looks like to live for Jesus because I am. And so that's what I did. And I don't know that this had anything to do with it, but here's something that happened. 
God spoke to all three of those guys and they professed faith in Jesus and now they are faithfully serving in churches in my hometown. It was very easy for me to tell myself, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You don't, you don't have to go back and do that. You don't have to go back and apologize. It doesn't matter. It does. And then Jesus leaves us with this powerful promise of hope. I'm with you always. Even until the end of the age. When you hear these things, it, it's tough. It's scary. We think that we're not ready and all those things are true. But we miss the promise. Here's what he says. I'm with you always. What does that mean? You will have all the power you will ever need to live the way I've called you to live and to do what I've called you to do. It will not be your own power. I will give it to you. A never ending supply of power. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say. <laughs> when I first started preaching, I would sweat even more than I do now because I was so scared of what I was going to say. And as I began to read, I read Jesus saying to his disciples, do not worry about what you're going to say. I will speak for you. And now I don't worry. I still worry about what I'm going to say. It's just in a different way. Now I worry about not saying something stupid and getting in front of Jesus and getting in his way. I'm with you always. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say because I will speak for you. I'm with you always. You are never alone in this. You're never alone. Read the New Testament, read the Gospels. Jesus did not send his disciples out alone. He sent them two by two. He sent them out as a group. He sent them out as a church. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians. You're not alone. And not only are you not alone physically, you're not alone spiritually because God has implanted his very Holy Spirit inside of you, the comforter. The caregiver, the encourager is always with you. I am with you always and no power can separate you from me. None of the things in this world that you fear has the power to sever our relationship. Has the power to stop my love. Has the power to snatch you out of my hand. I am with you always, and you are more than a conqueror. Here's how I want to end today. And these are the questions that I've had to ask myself, so understand that this is for me before it is for you. Where do you stop short? The reality is we all do. Where is it? I love Jesus. I'm glad he saved me. I'm thankful for that. I love coming to church and Jesus says, go. Nope, not doing that. That's where I stop. I love Jesus. 
I'm happy to be a part of his church. I'm happy to support and give my time and my talents. And I'm happy to go. I want you to share the gospel. Nope. That's where I stop. I want you to teach. Nope. That's where I stop. Where do you stop short? And the final follow-up question of that is this. How are you going to explain those choices to Jesus? That's not a threat. But we're going to meet him face-to-face one day. And I think when it says in Revelation 21.4 that he wipes away the tears from our eyes, I think probably what that's going to be is we're going to be broken over how little we did. And we're just going to burst into tears because we see him and we see his glory and we see his goodness and we think, man, we should have done way more than what we did. And he's just going to wipe those away. If Jesus was standing in front of you today, how do you explain? How do you explain the choices that you've made? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. I ask now that we've heard your word. We've been commissioned by you. And now it's time to go, to say yes. Help us today, even in our doubt and our fear and our shame and our sin, all of those. Help us to to move past that into the mission that you've called us to do. Help us. Let today be the day where we say yes and we continue to say yes in our life to live for you. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.